Hello, friends, and welcome back to Ill Nature, a true crime podcast. This is Michelle. And I'm Alyssa. the two-parter yeah we are wait a minute are we on to, are we up to three parts no 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 now i think i am gonna wrap it up in two parts okay good she thinks now there was i really was not prepared <laughs> for all this honestly yeah and i know y'all are not fans of the multi-parters but they just keep happening well you know we want all the info, right? Listen, and I'm giving it to you. So, yeah. um, really quick before we start, we have a few things to talk about. Okay. The first thing I want to talk about is something kind of goofy before we get into this, all the dark stuff. Okay, that sounds lovely. This is what I was going to tell you on the podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, So, yeah. I watched a new movie last night. Hey. It's Spill called, it, girls. Spill it. It's called Bullet Train. Have you heard of it? No. Okay. I uh, haven't been watching much TV lately. It's okay too. because I hadn't heard of it either. And Bullet Train or Bullet Eye? Which is Bullet Train. Train. Okay. So I think McKay f- maybe found it on Netflix. Anyways, so it's, it's a new Netflix. yeah, it's a new movie. I had never heard of it. He just randomly clicked on it. I was yeah. really confused in the beginning. I wanted to tell you this because Brad Pitt was in the movie. Oh, that's my man's stop it. You know that's my boy. And when I was watching it, I was like Dang, what, I really fun? do like Brad Pitt. Okay, he's got that mutt. He's got that something about him. Even if he didn't look like, you know, a Greek cod, he just is. I mean, I don't think he's like the hottest creature. He has a musk, life. though. Like, he has a, a, like a muskiness, something about him. Not mustiness. He, he just kind of looks like rough, but not in no, a bad but, way. But, but like in sweet, you know, in gentle, I like him. tender. And he was funny in that movie, And he too. is. He I just funny. really like him. And it just, just, I'm so happy. That makes me really happy. I knew you would enjoy that. Yes, but I'm going home watching it. I don't care if I have to stay up till midnight. It was very confusing in the beginning, yeah. but I think it ended up being a really good movie. I think y'all should go watch it. Um, I like to watch that by myself. Me and my boy Brad, you know, I don't I'm just saying. Not like that. Oh, shit. <laughs> you don't have to cut it, but no, it's not like that. You don't <laughs> have to cut it. I do have to cut yeah. it. You don't. I'm not. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, the second thing of uh-huh. business is I wanted to talk about the boy in the box case. So exciting. But so, also, it's heartbreaking. It is I read very, the story. Yes, yeah. So it's hard to hear, but I do want to give you just kind of like a quick little update. I've given yep. y'all the link on Facebook if you're a part of that. But um, December 8th, I believe the Philly PD released the name of the boy in the box, and he was identified as Joseph. Augustus Zarilli, or Zarilli, yeah, um, he was born on January 13th of 1953, so that would have made him four years old when he passed, 
and he is believed to have been from West Philadelphia. Now, of course, we got a name for him, but there's a ton of more questions. questions. Yeah, yes, like, there are. They, um, they said they were able to find some siblings on his mother and father's side who are still living. Oh, okay. Um, so... I don't know what they can do about that. And they do have suspicions as to who they think was responsible, but really? they weren't. Yes, yes. Well, we, they didn't tell us, right? No, they, they said they that. weren't going to share those suspicions because the case is ongoing. And I guess it's probably not an evidence to back it up quite Or yet. the human's still alive, and they can't risk them um, suing right. them. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So. Oh, I would love if somebody could get convicted, too. That would be Wouldn't awesome. that be bananas? So I just wanted to give y'all that um, little update of one of our cases we have done before. That, that has now been solved. Now look, we're not saying that we possess any kind of special abilities. This is the third case that we have covered or talked about that has been solved. First was Brittany Drexel. Then was... Uh, Alyssa mentioned doing the Summerton Man, like we had a conversation about it. Yeah, me and then did within have a, a conversation yeah, about and it off air a couple weeks. Oh, was it off air? Yeah, maybe. Maybe I think it wasn't. Was, no, I think it was in the episode. Okay, maybe it was in the episode. I don't remember. But that was just a few weeks before he was identified, and now the boy in the box. So y'all stay tuned for number four. What will it be? Well, we. I mean, that's the goal, right? To help exactly. get the that's what we're doing. I mean, that's what we're doing. Yeah, we're talking that's about exactly it. What we're doing. We are spreading awareness. We're bringing it back up for people to other people to talk about, and we're trying to get and maybe just maybe we're putting sprinkling, you know, a little dust, and and they're getting solved. Yeah, it's crazy. We're spreading wildflower, baby. Yes. So, mm -hmm. um, now, now, I let's, think we're going to yep. jump into our case now. So, last week, if you were with us, you know we are covering the disappearance of Anne-Marie Fahey. And we kind of talked about her life and yep. how she met Thomas Capana, who she was in an affair with first you know, a few years, so yeah. we're going to kind of jump back into it. She was actually in a relationship with a fella named Mike Scanlon at the time of her disappearance. So, we're going to pick up on January 27th, 1996. Mm -hmm. Mike called Anne-Marie before about 7 p.m., and there was no answer, so he left a message telling her that there was an event that um, he was going to attend and he was going to be back by 9 p.m. He called again. Wait, wait, wait. Were they living together at this point? No, they weren't. Okay. They were just boyfriend and girlfriend. They were gotcha. living separately. She lived in an apartment all on her own. Gotcha. And he got back from the event and he called again telling her he was um, going to go out to a bar. And he was like, I'd love if you'd come join me. Um but he never saw her or heard from her that night. Um, and then the following day, Friday, June 28th, he called, leaving another message telling her, you know, call me back. I'm worried I haven't heard from you. Whenever you get this, just give me a call back. Mm -hmm. The day after, he drove by her house and saw her car in her driveway. And he knew they had plans that night 
to go meet with um, her older brother, Robert. They were supposed um, to meet him at 6.30 and then leave all together to go to dinner. Mm-hmm. But when that time came and went and there was no word from Anne-Marie, Mike decided mm-hmm. he was going to call Kathleen and see if she had heard from her um, So this was not normal. No. Okay. Now she's missed something she was supposed to do. Yeah. With Mike. Yeah, okay. so... Friday, she would have naturally had work, but she actually yep. had the day off. So, no suspicions had arised. Oh, and then Saturday, when they were supposed to meet with her brother, and she missed that, you know, dinner date, yeah. they were kind of getting worried. Well, Kathleen had told Mike that she hadn't seen or heard from Anne-Marie in several days, and she said that um, she recalled seeing her for supper on Wednesday the 26th, so mm-hmm. um, the day before anyone Yikes. became worried. It's lots of days. Lots of days. Yeah. And Anne-Marie was talking about leaving the governor's office and going back to school to be a teacher. Kathleen said there wasn't anything that seemed out of the norm for her sister that night. Um... But she began to worry as well. Yeah. So she started calling other people like Anne-Marie's friends, co-workers, you know, Robert himself. You know, just anybody seeing if they had spoken yeah. to her since Wednesday the 26th. Yeah. And all of them said no. Mm-hmm. None of them had seen or heard from her. And so Kathleen decided to call the Wilmington police to report her sister missing. Because nobody's seen her for mm, three or four days. And this was very odd and out of character for Marie or Anne Marie to do. Yeah. Now Kathleen called Mike back and told him to meet her at Anne Marie's apartment. When the pair got into the apartment, they noticed an awful smell. Can I just say that Ellis's cat Smokey has never paid me any attention. He is presently giving me kisses and letting me rub his face. He's and a I'm loving really boy. I love you. He just needs to like get to know you. <gasps> look, look. Oh, he's really the most cuddly boy. Oh, for I real. love it. Oh, okay. Sorry. This is just, this is breaking news. Breaking news for all of you. Yeah. In case y'all were wondering, Smokey the Cat is letting me rub. He'll start drooling on you too. He really loves cuddles. Oh, oh he's very handsome. His little cheeks. Isn't he cute? Sorry. He's so cute. He's so cute. We need to post a picture. Kathleen called Mike back and told him to meet her at Anne-Marie's apartment. When the pair got into the apartment, they noticed an awful smell. There were groceries sitting on a counter that had gone bad and mushrooms in the trash that was emitting the smell. Kathleen knew immediately something was wrong because Anne-Marie was very, very tidy, very clean, and would never leave groceries out on the counter to rot or let some trash stink up her entire place. No. And I think we discussed in part one how she was, um, she struggled with like obsessive cleanliness and stuff. So she liked a little bit of OCD well, and yeah. stuff. Yeah. So she would have never Anne left Marie. her house no. like this. In Anne Marie's bedroom, her bed was a mess. It was not made up like it typically was. Her closet was a mess, and Kathleen saw that Anne Marie's suitcases and her purse were still in her apartment but her keys were missing. 
So she was like, if she planned on leaving, she would have taken her suitcases or her purse with her, too. Yeah, absolutely. Kathleen found letters from Tom and her. Oh, Kathleen found letters from Tom and Anne Marie's diary. These were the first indications of an affair with a married man that any of you know yeah. anyone really yeah. knew about because yeah. it was really Life secret. Yeah. Either. Just before midnight, two officers arrived at Anne Marie's house: Detective Mark Daniels and Sergeant Steve Montego, and two Wilmington police agents arrived as well. Start and they started an investigation into where Anne Marie could be. While friends were digging around, calling to see if anyone had seen her, her friend Kim received a call from Robert's wife, Susan, who happened to be Anne Marie's sister-in-law, of course. Yep. And Susan had mentioned Tom Capano. Now, Kim didn't say anything because she didn't really know what everyone knew about right. Anne Marie and Tom's relationship and stuff. So she kind of was like, oh, Tom, hmm, interesting, you know? Yeah. Um, and then when she got off the phone with Susan, she called Tom herself. Now, this is where it kind of starts getting looking at Tom, I guess. He says that uh, he hadn't seen or heard from her since Thursday night when they had dinner together. Mm-hmm. Tom told Kim he was under the impression she would be with with her this weekend yep. at the shore, but Kim informed him that was never the plan. So I don't know where you got that information from, but that we weren't right. going. Yep. And he told Kim he needed to think about it and he would just give her a call back. Hmm. Yeah, that's very sus. I'm suspicious. Mm-hmm. Tom called Kim back at 12.04 a.m. and said they went to a nice dinner together Thursday night, and afterwards they stopped by his apartment. He gave her a gift, this expensive pants suit from Talbot's. She had just been looking at her sister the weekend before. Oh, a pants suit. That's lovely. Yeah. What year I think it was like The 90s? Yeah, 96. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. He also said he had gifted her a bag of groceries because he was concerned about her weight. He said he took... Oh, my gosh. Don't micromanage me, sir. Oh, yeah. Ew. He later... Like, we'll get into it later in the episode, but he says, like, he ends up feeling like a caregiver for her. Ew. Like, you are not her father. And he is not even cute. He's disgusting. He's gross. His picture kept... Every time I'd open to look at stuff in one of my... um, I I don't know, my search engine. Anyway. There he was. Ew. You're ugly. I keep yeah. seeing more awful pictures of him as I do more research. Really? I'm like, yeah, it's just not cute. No, there's nothing there. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Um, but he said that he took her home, checked the air conditioning unit because apparently it was messed up. And when he saw it was perfectly fine, he told her goodnight and left. Mm-hmm. He told Kim that Amory was probably fine. You know, she's probably somewhere blowing off steam because she had a very stressful week at work. And said, oh, you know, she'll probably turn back up at work on Monday as if nothing ever happened. But Kim informed him that Anne-Marie's family was very worried about her and said they were worried enough to have already contacted the police. And he was, Tom said, quote, I wonder if they're looking to talk to me, end quote. 
Yeah, bitch. Well, they definitely are now. Right. You know, police were wanting to talk to him as soon as they found and read the letters between them two, along with her diary that mentioned, you know, everything about the relationship. Oh, goodness. That's one one thing. I'll probably never have a diary. Because you think of something. I know that's weird, but my morbid brain. Um, Think about something happens to me. I don't want anybody reading my diary. Why would I write it all down? So that when I'm murdered. I mean, no, I'm kidding. Not, not kidding. Moment. Not kidding. Moment. But you know what I'm saying. Like, I wouldn't want anybody able to read about my most intimate thoughts. Well, right. But I mean, you know, I'm I'm proud for those who journal. Well, I'm very happy for them. I will say that, like, when I was in, like, fourth grade, I kept, like, a diary. Oh, yeah, and I remember, I remember writing about this boy and saying that he was so hot. Y'all are going to get, like, the bee's knees. No, mm-mm, it's bad. If my sister's listening to this, she will literally die because she knows exactly what I'm talking about, or she at least remembers it. But she, I said that um, you were in love. Oh, I was like, he's so hot, you can bake cookies on him. Yes, you wrote it in there. Oh my gosh, that is hilarious. Stop, you can bake cookies on him. <laughs> so I used to Friday. write it. Oh well. Anyways, he's not even that cute. But anyways, <laughs> he might not be anymore. Was he then though? I guess I thought he was then. Yeah, I mean, kids cute. I mean, that fourth grade cute's a little different than what we now know. You know? Oh, for sure, for sure. But anyways, yeah, I think that was a funny story. So very. Funny. Um, I didn't mean it. Very funny. Very, yeah, it was actually not funny. funny at all. Thanks so much. Oh my gosh, everybody! I wonder what that Valley Girl accent sounds like coming out of these Southern mouths. We'll hear, won't we? Yeah, probably. (laughs) Anyways, so police, you know, like I said, of course, were wanting to talk to Tom. So they arrived at his house around 3.30 a.m. And he answered the doors if he had just woken up. I mean, 3.30 a.m.? Well, I was about to say, well, tell he just woken up. I mean, 97% of... Oh, hit him at 3.30. (laughs) So he can't lie. Stop it. Okay, that makes more sense. Unless it's like, and I have an answer for that. Don't play. I need y'all to listen. Anyways, no, for okay, real. Okay. But, um, yeah, so, you know, he's like, I was snoozing hard. <laughs> you know, sorry you woke he me up. No, yeah, literal I love quote. It. I love it. Um, he invited them to come inside and talk, but he said that they needed to keep it down because his daughters oh, were upstairs. His whole family. No, no, because he and his wife had already split up at this point. Okay. They were living separately. Yep, I remember. I saw coming back. So his daughters were upstairs asleep. Now, mm-hmm. Detective Mark Daniels found Tom's behavior to be a bit odd kind of from the start he said that tom was just so nonchalant about the whole situation like my god you had supper with your extra ex mistress and was 100 the last person who saw her alive and now she gone and she missing you need to add a little bit more concerned um tom did confess mm. to police that yes him and marie him and Anne marie were having an affair for what like three years yeah oh but the last time they had been in bed together was about six months oh. ago. Okay. But just because he hadn't slept with her that night yeah, didn't he, mean he didn't make her disappear. I mean, you don't have to have sex no, with somebody that night. They die, like, you know, or disappear. Is Sam bringing her pantsuits? They're banging. Sorry. Right? I don't know. We'll talk about that. Okay. Because okay. I think we get into it. The We'll get into the spring before her disappearance a little more in depth in just a few moments. But... Uh-huh. 
you know, he goes on to tell police that they were still very close friends and described Amory as sort of an airhead and unpredictable. He also wanted to throw in that Anne-Marie had been having trouble with family, specifically Kathleen. Mm. Tom told police how Anne-Marie was very unhappy at work and struggled with different mental illnesses such as depressions and, you know, all the ones we've previously mentioned. Right. As most suspicious people do, they give a statement about how the victim had made comments about suicide and Tom was no different. Yeah. He stayed calm, cool, and collected, shrugged it off to police as well, saying that she's probably out with friends blowing steam off and that she'd show up to work on Monday morning. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he just didn't seem really concerned. Um, you know, he gave them the same story about picking Anne-Marie up around 6.30 p.m., eating at Panorama, going back to Anne-Marie's, looking at the unit, and then leaving around 10. Tom said she was alive and well and seemed normal. On his way home, he stopped for cigarettes at a store called the Getty Station Mini Mart on Lovering Avenue. Mm-hmm. He said he also knew that Anne Marie was planning on getting the fall getting was planning on taking the following Friday after their date off from work, allegedly. Like I said, that's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he knew that. Yep. And the police get up to leave, and Detective Daniels asked Tom if Anne Marie were in his house at that moment, and she didn't want anyone to know. Know, would he tell them? Now, Tom replied honestly by saying, no, probably not, but she wasn't there anyways. That, to me, though, isn't the best question to ask in that situation. Like, if someone was hiding in my house right now and told me not to tell anyone, I probably wouldn't tell Right. Either. Unless they were a murderer or, you know, some well, sort of criminal. It. If it's somebody that just doesn't want Mike, their lover or boyfriend, they're not lovers like these two are. But anyways, yeah. Yeah, I guess what I said, but like a girl hiding from someone or wanting just to escape for a while. Like, why would you, like, respect their wishes? And it's got to the point where the police are here. Like, you're going to tell them, hey, I would say. Well. I would tell them that. I'd be like, she's fine. That's right. But I'm not telling you where she's at. Wink, wink. She's fine. I know she's fine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Detective Daniels asked one last question before they left and said, if Anne-Marie does not show back up to work like you think, will you talk to us again? And Tom said, of course, yes. Now, after talking to Tom, they go talk to her um, newest therapist at the time of her death, whose name was Michelle. Oh! And she told the police that Anne-Marie wanted Tom in her life only as friends. And we're going to kind of go back a few months and, like I said, fill in some more details about the spring before she went missing and then meet back up where everyone is concerned about her whereabouts in June. Now, in one of their later meetings, her and her therapist, later February meetings, she told her that it had been roughly two weeks since her last contact with Tom, and that was hopeful for her. She thought he had finally gotten the message about being just friends. Yep. By St. Patty's Day of that year, she and her friend Jill had been planning on going to some breakfast, but Anne-Marie was afraid to go knowing Tom would be there. He emailed her sometimes, you know, but as far as Anne-Marie knew, he hadn't been watching her every move or calling her constantly, so it was progress, and she kind of wanted to keep her distance and keep that going. Instead of going to that breakfast, her and Jill met that evening at a fundraiser held in Washington, D.C. by 
none other than President Bill Clinton. He was throwing a campaign for the governor of Delaware, Tom Carper, who Anne-Marie worked for. Now, Anne-Marie actually ended up meeting Bill Clinton and shaking hands with him. Um, But little did she know that old Billy there was having an affair with a super young age chicky himself. You know, and she was shaking hands with someone as disturbed as her ex-lover. But, you know, that's fine because she was also meeting other politically connected people. You know, and I'm sure there were some good ones sprinkled in. Sure. But let's not be too hopeful because they're politicians, so probably not. They're all pretty skis. Yeah. But, you know, that's besides the point. Yes, After sir. the fundraiser, okay. Anne-Marie agreed to go across the street with Jill and some friends to a bar, and she didn't end up getting back to her apartment until about 3 a.m. that morning. Okay. You go, girl. I was about to say, so that meant she must have had fun, had which fun. is good because yeah. she deserved it. She's been struggling with her mental health and I'm glad you know, she was seeing a therapist and getting help that's, that's one therapy. thing that was at least consistent in her life she was at least always seeing a therapist that's awesome unfortunately you know her therapist bob died and then she was on to her new therapist that she's kind of getting used to but yeah at least she had one had a pop down a car accident dang that sucks they had rescheduled their session so he could go meet with somebody else and she felt like it was her fault. Oh my gosh. Dang. You would. You would feel. Now, Anne Marie received a call from Tom the next day saying he had heard she went out to the bar last night with Jill. And they should be ashamed of themselves for acting like a bunch of whores. Oh my gosh. This guy. Ew. On Easter, she wrote in her diary what I read last week at the end of the episode saying she had brought closure to Tom Capano. So we know that on April 7th of 1996, she was 100% over Tom and she thought it was a done deal. She wrote how she couldn't believe she let someone take control over her for so long and dealing with Bob's death was hard on her. She compares herself after Bob's death as she was. she, She compares herself now. Uh-huh. After Bob had died, as she was, like as a child, scared and insecure. Aww. Five weeks before this injury, she had been diagnosed with bulimia and was only 125 pounds. Aww. I remember she was like 5'8 to 5'10. She was tall. Really and tall. that, golly. Now, police also learned from her therapist that in their April 10th session, Anne-Marie told her therapist, Michelle... That a friend of hers had been toying with the possibility of Anne-Marie being kidnapped by someone who was hired by another person. Golly. All right. Michelle was puzzled by this revelation and questioned her on who could possibly have reason to hire someone to kidnap. And, you know, like, who would do that? Right. Anne-Marie's answer, you know, she answered without hesitation. Tom Capano. And Michelle told her to start keeping a log of all of Tom's harassments, all the calls, texts, emails, conversations, drive-bys, literally anything that had to do with Tom. Every time he calls you by oh, yeah, stop. Document that. Kick her in the balls. She also suggested Anne Marie go to attorney to the attorney general and report Tom, but she was afraid to. And honestly, she had a right to be. I mean, Tom was a wealthy lawyer who could pull strings or simply lie his way out of virtually anything. 
I mean, she was scared the affair details would come out and, you know, she would be put in a negative light in her career. Yeah. And people would think bad about her, which, again, very much reasonable fear because especially in this time and in politics behind the scene, women were shut up a ton. Yeah. And just not believed at all. So, Mm -hmm. you know, she really didn't have very many good options. Bless her heart. That sucks that she struggled so much. And then ugh. and then she had a psycho-ass yeah. stalker boyfriend that went and leave her alone. we struggle anyway. Women. Everywhere. Everywhere. Where we work. You know? Especially government. Well, right. And, like, the thing is, is, like, she couldn't even get away from Tom because he didn't, like, she didn't work close with him, but she would have to deal with him. Yeah. So... Ugh. That sucks. And by the end of April, Tom emailed Anne-Marie and told her that his second daughter was diagnosed with a brain tumor and would be having brain surgery. He said he was obviously scared and concerned for his daughter. Imagine something happening to his loved ones. He just said it was impossible, you know. Unfortunately for Anne-Marie, Tom was completely lying to her. He knew that she cared for Gross. his children and was someone who was kind-hearted and took advantage of that. Gross. Yes. Anne-Marie told him that if he needed to talk at all, she was there for him and then asked Anne-Marie to go to the hospital and visit his daughter, Katie. Anne-Marie said that she could not do that. That would be completely a slap in the, in the face to his wife, Kay, oh. and thought it was completely inappropriate. She was even a little upset that Tom even asked her to do that. You know, putting her in uncomfortable, uncomfortable right. position. Right. You know. Now, around the same time, he was making another request to one of his other girlfriends. Ugh. He asked Debbie McIntyre to buy him a gun. He used the same story as he did with his brother Jerry, saying he was being extorted and needed to use the gun this time to scare the extortionist. Stop it. He was like, you know, when I get done getting these guys off my back, you can actually have the gun for yourself, because I'm worried about you. You know, being in a big house all alone, being a lady, you know. You get the gun back after I (sighs) deal with the extortionist. Now, in the beginning, Debbie was not comfortable doing that, but Tom being the I-get-whatever-I-ask-for kind of guy was very persistent. Yeah. Debbie eventually gave in to Tom, and he gave her instructions to go into the hunting section of her local sporting goods store. He gave her instructions. He sent her to buy the gun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she walked Red flag. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Just wait. There's a lot of red flags. flags. So she told the guy working the counter that she was there to buy a gun for a friend. Wronky. If you yeah. weren't aware for this podcast, buying a gun for someone else is very, very much legal and obviously yeah. not a part of the script Tom had planned for her. <laughs> the sm- the smells, ma'am. The salesman <laughs> was like, uh, ma'am. We gotta take a second. The smells, ma'am. Was like, ma'am, I can't sell you a gun for somebody else. And now that you said that, I'm not gonna sell you a gun, period. Period. Yeah. Goodbye. <laughs> um, have a nice day. Holler. Debbie was terrified to go back and tell Tom that she'd messed up, but surprisingly, he took it very well and said it was fine. She was scared to tell her? Yeah. Okay. He dropped the subject after that. Now, he was only okay with it because a week before, he had been to the same sporting goods store and bought a 162-quart cooler 
the biggest cooler they offered at 44 inches long and two feet deep. And as far as I'm still aware of, he was in possession of Jerry's revolver at this time, too. Now, Anne-Marie was still communicating with Tom as a concerned friend, but was sort of falling back into patterns with discussing her issues with Tom. In one email, she complained about a windshield she was going to have to get fixed for $500. So before she could even blink, she received an email or an envelope with five $100 bills in it. Mm -hmm. Just like old times. Yeah. But Anne-Marie mm -hmm. couldn't accept this gift this time, and she thanked Tom, but turned down politely. Tom replied, quote, we'll talk about that in person, as you suggest. But remember, it's not a gift. It's only a loan with some pretty serious repayment provisions. I didn't go to law school for nothing. The balance can be repaid at any rate of $5 a week. Of course, if you default, there is a penalty. You will have to scrub my toilets and iron my boxers, end quote. Gross. P.S. Who's out there ironing boxers? Are you kidding me, dude? What a nut. Red flag. Hello. <laughs> Sorry. Hello. If, if 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 your man's is, well, no, no. I'm not going to put that on the man. I mean, really? Your booty hole touches those. Like, don't earn it. <laughs> There's no point. Your duty hole. This guy's a weirdo. Okay. I think we're, we've really, really sealed the deal. Well, first all of this. all, from my understanding, she didn't even freaking ask for the money. Right. But he was like, here I am doing you a favor, but you're going to repay me one way or another. Yeah. And in no time, they were yes. going back to regular lunches during the week, and Tom felt accomplished knowing he had Anne-Marie back in his grasp. <sighs> the first weekend in May, Tom invited Debbie to a weekend conference in D.C., and Debbie recalled Tom being on edge all weekend and acting like something was bothering him. But she said that they did have a great time together, and he promised her the future and all the things that she wanted in life with him. On May 12th, after the lovely weekend they had together, Tom asked Debbie to buy him a gun once again. So he was trying to butter her up. And Debbie didn't argue this time because she was, you know, on the high from the weekend together and wanted to do what she could to please this him. This guy is so manipulative. Completely manipulative. Yes. Craziness. Phew. The next day, he drove Debbie to Miller's Gun Center and told her to go inside and say that she was wanting a small gun for self-defense. She bought a 22 caliber Beretta revolver, a box of bullets, and signed a paper that said she was not buying the gun for anyone other than her and she wouldn't allow anyone else to use it. Oh, goodness. She walked back got to set up. Set Sorry. Up. Yeah. She walked back to the vehicle, handed the gun immediately to Tom, and never saw it again. Debbie later recalled saying, quote, I was afraid Tom would get mad if I didn't do what he wanted me to. And do what? Take back all the food he fed you? Girl, that food's gone, okay? I was afraid he would get so mad or so angry that he would leave me. <sighs> so Debbie was, she was in. She hadn't quite realized how whatever or it didn't matter as long as you know they were going out and having yeah. fun and stuff like that she together. had she wasn't to amory's point where it was like okay this guy is Sucky. scary yeah no she wasn't and in all honesty if you're scared to say no to your partner without some form of retaliation yeah, yeah. or him leaving you then that tells you that that's not the partner you should that's be that's not that's not who you uh who you should be with girl i'm just gonna tell you right now girl or guy hey if you out there, you know, the manipulation, that's just, whoa. Like, 
Whoa. That would do me a lot there. May 20th, Tom emailed Anne-Marie about dinner reverberations. Reset. Jeez, Louise. Reservations. Reserve. Yeah, baby. Yes. He made for them at Victor's for the following Thursday night. Amory was kind of confused about this because she was almost 100% sure she told Tom that she'd be not in town that weekend. Her and Mike were actually going to Cape Cod for Memorial oh. Weekend. I'm not exactly sure if she told Tom every detail about the plans for the weekend or not, but, you know, he knew that she was going to Cape Cod. Mm-hmm. The next day, she told Tom that her air conditioning was not working and she had slipped crappy the night before because of how hot it was. Mm-hmm. And Tom offered to come look at it and then said they could go do dinner that night, but said she had plans with Kathleen. Mm-hmm. May 23rd, while Anne-Marie was packing for her weekend trip, she got a call from Tom reminding her that he made reservations for them when she got back. She had not been feeling the best the last few days, lightheadedness, tired and weak. Uh-huh. And Tom told her that she could stay home instead of going to Cape Cod that weekend, and he offered to take care of her. He hung up after saying that he missed her already, and he couldn't wait to see her when she got back. She continued to not feel the best over the weekend, and that affected her eating, along with the fact that she was stressed out about keeping so many secrets from Tom. I mean, from Mike. Right. Unfortunately, since allowing Tom back into her life, she started fighting her demons again and picked the laxative back up. No. Yes, unfortunately. And she continued not eating as much food. You know, it completely disgusted her. And by June 12th, it had gotten so bad that she ended up fainting at work. Everyone she worked with was super concerned because no one was aware she was struggling with an eating disorder. And when she came to, she didn't want to tell anyone what truly happened because she didn't want, you know, anyone to judge her or look down on her. That's right. So she You called, don't. There's a lot of shame with eating disorders and any kind of, even vices. Like, even something you do that's not necessarily hurting somebody, you still yeah. you get to a point where you feel like crap about it and you're almost embarrassed. Even yeah. though there's not really anything wrong with. She called one of the only people that knew about her eating disorder and that was Tom. He came running to her side like the hero and took her home, fed her some broth, and the next morning, Emery emailed him, thanking him for his help. He replied with something super freaking spooky, saying, quote, you're welcome. Sleep well now and for the rest of the summer. I know you'll get better. I just wish you'd let me help. Kind of like a coach, you know what I mean? End quote. I mean, I do not like that. Ew. Sleep well now Ew. and for the rest of the summer. Because Anne-Marie would go like missing and never be seen again. Yeah. Not too long after this conversation. Ew. A little foreshadowing. And you know he did that on purpose. Ew. This guy's disgusting. Yeah, he thinks he's so clever, but... I got his number. We got your your number. Mm -hmm. In mid-June, Anne-Marie accepted Tom's invitation to go golfing with one of his daughters. She also mentioned one of her professors coming into town and saying she wanted to take him out for dinner but was too broke to. Later, Tom sent her a $100 bill with a note attached that said, quote, do it, it'll make you smile to see him, end quote. Then, Tom sent her another $30 on June 25th with a note that said, quote, you should not be penniless for several days in case of emergency, like an overwhelming yearn for a latte, end quote. Mm-hmm. Trying to butter her up with money. Now, on June... Because that's all he's got to offer. That's exa- well, that's what he thinks is the... 
biggest priority in his life is money. Yeah. Well. On June 26th, Kim Hortzman recalled talking to Anne-Marie for the very last time. Mm. Kim said, quote, Annie sounded great. Really great. We talked about her eating disorder, and she said that she had gained a couple of pounds. Mm. She was very happy about that. She cut the number of laxatives she was taking in half, so she felt she was getting better. And we talked about her relationship with Michael. She felt that that was going very well, and she was excited about that. You know, she was excited about that. It was a very upbeat conversation. Later that day, she met with her therapist for the last time. Tom Capano actually never came up at all in this meeting. Um, It was all dedicated to talking about Anne Marie's, you know, kind of how she viewed herself and what she hated about herself. And so she came in that day in a good mood with a letter. That said, quote, I have many insecurities surrounding my life, but the most prevalent to me is the size of my legs. Below is a list of what goes through my mind on a daily basis. One, I cannot wear a skirt because some people will just see how big my calves are. Two, I will struggle through the summer because we wear less, which means more of my body is being exposed. Three, every morning I wake up, I talk myself out of wearing shorts or a dress. I have... Four, I have complete anxiety every time Michael sees me in shorts because I think this might just be the last time. I get embarrassed for Michael if we are out in public and I wear shorts. Five, I often look in the mirror when I get out of the shower and yell at my legs. Six, if I had thin legs, perhaps people would classify me as thin. Seven, I will look at other women and say, God, if only I had their legs, then maybe I would not be so ashamed of myself. Eight, a day does not go by that I don't spend some part obsessing over over the size of my legs. Nine, blah, blah, blah. Bless her heart. That makes me hurt. You know... Yeah, it's really... And and the sad thing is, I don't don't know if you remember in part one, but... Anne-Marie got the courage to wear a skirt to work one day. And Tom made a comment about how it made her look. What? I don't remember that. Oh, that that hurts me. After leaving this appointment with Michelle, Anne-Marie emailed Tom and was apologizing for being in a bad mood when they had spoken on the phone earlier. Mm -hmm. He wanted to see her that evening, and she said that she wouldn't be able to because she was mentally exhausted. He didn't email her back until the next day, Thursday, June 27th. He said she didn't have anything to worry about, and he was going to make her laugh when he picked her up to go eat at Panorama that evening. He said he was going to get her calamari and to, quote, surprise you with something that will make you smile, end quote. She left her house that evening wearing a floral sundress with Thomas Capano. It seemed to a lot of people that Tom was somehow maybe trying to recreate their first date. Mm-hmm. Spark intimacy back up. You know, something. Yep, 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 yep. Um, but he was giving her an ultimatum without her knowledge. You know, he was going to do all these nice things for her. Gift her this expensive pantsuit. Take her to a him. nice, relate, you know, restaurant. restaurant whatever. Relationship And if everything went well, he was hoping their relationship would go back into that lover affair stage. Yep, yep, yep. And if not, well... 
We know. <clears throat> it was the last chance. People at the restaurant that night later recalled seeing the couple together. Everyone described the couple as kind of unhappy and tense. Anne-Marie barely ate anything and got everything on her plate to go. Their waitress ended up saying she never overheard any light chatter at the table that night. Yeah. And she ended up doing an interview with the Philadelphia Inquirer saying when the FBI agent showed her a photo of Anne-Marie, she said she looked much healthier in the photo than she did the night she was being served. Mm -hmm. She was also described as looking sad. Anne-Marie and Tom stayed at the restaurant that night for a little over two hours. Mm -hmm. And the waitress said, you know, she described Tom as very dominating. When the waitress brought the bill, Tom took his card out and slid it along with the bill towards Anne-Marie for her to calculate the tip. The pair left a few minutes later without saying much else. And as we know, they allegedly arrived back at Anne Marie's around 10 p.m. Tom goes to check on the air conditioner unit and leaves. Yeah. Now, in the early morning hours of June 30th, 1996, the next order of business for police was to check Tom's alibi. Detective Daniels went to the Getty station where Tom said he stopped for cigarettes a little after 10 when he left Anne Marie's, you know, alive in her apartment. Yep. Detective Daniels goes to talk to one of the employees at the station, and the employee who knew Tom Capano, you know, because he was a regular in the store, said he never saw him that night. Steve, the employee, mm. actually said, you know, I wasn't even there at 10 p.m. myself, and there's no way he could have been getting cigs because we were closed. We closed at 9.30 every Thursday night. And, oh, yeah. Busted, pack your bags. Detective Daniels is like, well, that's not good. So he called Tom to try and get an explanation, but there was no answer. Hmm. After the alibi fell through, they started piecing more and more things together. You know, he was the last known person to see her alive. His alibi is not good. And they have diary entries and emails that show a rocky relationship between the two. The, t the, t the detectives go to Tom's house looking for him and drive by Kay's as well. They eventually found him at 2.30 p.m. backing out of Kay's garage. Detective Daniels walked up to Tom's vehicle and said they had some more questions for him. Hmm. Now, this time there was a very different shift in Tom's demeanor since the last time they saw each other. Uh -huh. You know, before he was very helpful. He was like, yeah, I'll talk to you guys again. Anything, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But now Tom was really aggravated and clearly did not want to talk to the police. Apparently, Tom had taken some nighttime medicine that doped him up a little bit the night before. So, when police came knocking on his door at 3.30 a.m., he was woken out of this, you know, medically induced sleep, if you will. That's right. And was giving out a little bit more information than he had wanted to about him and Anne-Marie's relationship. Uh. He was so different this time because he knew he had screwed up when he was talking to the police before. Because, you know, in my, you know, they didn't really have anything to say Right. But Tom did say that the police could follow him back to his house and they could talk. He reluctantly allowed them to look around the house, but made it very clear they were not allowed to open closets or doors. And, of course, he was on their heels the entire time. Right. The officers noticed how immaculate Tom's house was and found no sign of Anne-Marie being there ever. Hmm. Detective Daniels asked Tom if he had kept any of Anne-Marie's things, and he said, yeah, he had some clothes of hers, but he had gotten rid of them months back. 
They told him before leaving that if Anne-Marie was not at work the next day, Monday, then they were going to have to bring Tom in for a formal interview. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason they hadn't done so quite yet is because of his position in the government. Yep. They were kind of being easy on him. Yeah. But if she's not here tomorrow like you say she's going to be, yeah. we're going to have to bring you and talk to you. Going down. Now, of course, the story about Tom and his name and everything was splashed across the papers. So, his family members started asking questions. Now, in a conversation with his brother, Lewis, the Sunday mm-hmm. after Anne-Marie disappeared, you know, when all this, he yeah. was kind of MIA for a few hours, place yep. we're looking for him. He, he asked his brother to come over and told him basically the same story about going to dinner and then coming back to his house. Yep. Well... This is when he adds a new little detail in. He said he went to the bathroom, and when he came back out, he found that Anne-Marie had slit her wrists and gotten blood on his furniture. He said, luckily, her wounds weren't too deep, so he bandaged her up and took her home. Uh, okay. So, first of all, somebody tries to commit suicide on your couch, you're not going to call the police. You're just going to yeah. bandage them up and send them home to commit suicide again. And and take a whole bunch of fresh groceries with you and just leave the wounded human and fresh groceries out on the counter? I don't think so, Tom. Then he slips in a super strange request. He wanted the dumpsters. Now, I was kind of a little hazy on when this request came in. I think it was during this conversation at the end of June. Mm-hmm. But he asked for the dumpsters at Capano Construction Business to be emptied because him and his older brother, Jerry, had thrown some material in it. And Lewis was like, okay, I'll get them emptied. Well, after leaving his what? brothers that night, he rode by the dumpster and found an upside-down sofa inside of it. Now, we'll get back to that sofa in just a moment. Yes. Tom also, during that day, had given three adult videos, quote-unquote adult videos, to Debbie for her to hold for him in case the police searched his home because he didn't want them to find those because it would be embarrassing for him. Now, this is all happening, like I said, the weekend after she went missing, along with Tom driving over to Debbie's and making calls to the Holiday Inn, asking for their dumpsters to also be dumped. ASAP. Now, Uh July 1st, 1996 rolls around, and everyone at Tom Carper's office is watching the door and waiting to see if Anne-Marie would show up. But she never did. That day, a story ran in the news journal with a picture of Anne-Marie in the headline, Carper Staffer is Salt. Since Anne-Marie did not show up, Detective Daniels was going to make good on his promise and formally interview Tom Capano. So he called Tom's office, but was informed by his secretary that he was in a meeting. Mm-hmm. He was like, okay, well, tell him to give me a call when he gets out. While Daniels was waiting for Tom's return call, he received one from an attorney named Kathy Jennings. She was calling to tell Daniels that she and former Delaware Attorney General Charlie Overly, or Charles Overly, were going to be representing Thomas Capano. She claimed the town was nervous, and Tom didn't know why the police needed to talk to him again. Well, let me tell you. uh, I mean, Tom, you seem like a pretty smart guy, so let's use a little bit of that Too cocky, though. Too cocky. Yeah. Well, let's use a little bit of that lawyer logic you have. You know, yeah. you have yeah. a missing ex-mistress uh-huh. that was repeatedly turning you down for a couple of wants, 
couple of months. Yeah. yeah, and you were scared of losing control, so you uh-huh. killed her and got rid of the body. That's uh-huh. what it's seeming like you're to me. You're emptying trash cans. You're taking things to your other lover's house. That's, I mean, like, no, Tom. I, what the fuck? Yeah. Sorry, but for real. But for real. Ugh, so that's why I need to talk to you. But I guess you being the number one suspect is jumping the gun a little bit. You know, that's what I kind of would have said. Daniels was like, ma'am, are you quacking? Because you sound like a silly duck. <sighs> you know, it's a very obvious why we want to talk to him again. Tom yeah. literally admitted taking her to dinner that night and supposedly dropped her off. Right. He was the last person that saw her alive. And Kathy was like, okay, you know, I'll see. I'll speak with my client. I'll get back with you. Yeah. So they hung him the phone up, and Daniels realized that Tom lawyered up with some pretty well-known attorneys, and he knew then that this was going to be a tough case. Mm. And Tom was more than likely not going to come in for an interview willing. Nope. After this, Detective Daniels went to speak to Kim Hortzman, Mm-hmm. And she recalled Anne-Marie wanting to break up with Tom back in 1995 when her relationship with Mike first started. But she said Anne-Marie felt like Tom was obsessed with her. And he would also tell her friends that he was just not okay with only being friends with Anne-Marie. Mm-hmm. He said he was madly in love with her and he couldn't live without her. While he was talking to Kim, Detective Daniels got a call. Wait. That was so loud. Do you have another one of those? I don't. I'm so sorry, sis. <laughs> I've been throwing them back. V8 Energy Drink, Peach Mango. Guys, if you're listening, it is. It just tastes so good. It's like a mango, but you get a full. No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. I'm going to read it. Uh, One combined serving of veggies and fruit in every can. And this is not sponsored, but it should be. But it should be. So... While Detective Daniels was talking to Kim, he receives a phone call from Kathy. Mm -hmm. She was asking for a copy of the list of questions the police wanted to ask Tom. And Detective Daniels was like, that's literally the stupidest request I've ever been asked. Uh, There's a woman missing and we need to talk to Tom in person. Yeah, and we're not sending you a list of questions, you idiot. Well, that's what he said. He was like, we Uh need to ask him these questions in person because we need to ask him follow-up questions. And because he's he looks really effing guilty. Yeah. And we have to see the look on his face. We just need to see it all. Yeah. So then she was like, "Mm, okay, I'll talk to my client. Yeah, yeah. And hung up. Whatever, Barbara. What was her name? (laughs) I feel like. Who, man? I don't remember her name. Kathy. Kathy. Kathy Kathy Jennings. All right, Kathy. <laughs> Detective Daniels was able to corroborate that the couple did eat at Panorama and left around 9.15 p.m. Mm-hmm. Now, when they were kind of inspecting and looking through Anne-Marie's apartment, yeah. they found the floral dress she was wearing thrown over the back of her chair, and her leftovers were in the fridge. Mm-hmm. So, assumingly, she did look like she made it home. There were only a couple of things that Kathleen was able to notice that was missing from Anne-Marie's apartment. A blue topaz ring that Anne-Marie always wore with the dress that she had on because she thought they complemented each other very well. And her Walkman was missing. Mm. 
Now, the next morning, while Debbie was drinking her coffee and flipping... I'm trying to switch back through everybody's point of views through this. Yes. So, I'm kind of sure. I'm following. I'm following. I'm following. Yes, they are. Debbie was drinking coffee and flipping through the paper when she overlooked an article about a missing Wilmington woman that was last seen with a prominent lawyer. I guess she didn't see a name in the article because not a minute later, Tom was calling her and saying, like, yeah, I was that prominent lawyer they're talking about. You uh-huh. know, I think I'm a suspect in Anne-Marie's disappearance. Mm. I wanted to call and talk to you before I head to Stone Harbor. Now, quick note, Louis Capano, their father, bought a seven-mile stretch of beach at Stone Harbor in New Jersey mm. and built an enormous beach house there. Okay. Now... I wanted to mention this because this is where Tom said he was going. Now, it seems to me like Tom's running to a completely different state. Yes. And, you know, before he hung up the phone with Debbie, he told her that Charlie Overly would be calling her. Now, Debbie was a little confused because Tom told her last week that, yeah, he was going to be in Philly on Thursday night, but it was for a meeting. Uh-huh. You know, he didn't know no right. private dinners. No, so, no, Charlie no. called her and asked if she talked to Tom that night. She said she had talked to him on the phone several times after 10 p.m. Mm. That night, Tom called Debbie and admitted to her the affair with Anne-Marie and the other woman named Susan. She Wait, was a- I thought it was Debbie. There is Debbie. Oh, there my is Susan. Gosh. There is Anne-Marie and his wife, Kay. And then Debbie. As well. So, he's talking to Debbie right now. Okay, this is Debbie. This okay, is Debbie Susan is who I didn't know about. Yeah, we. Oh, she was briefly mentioned K. in part one. But she was a lover as well. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So, he called Debbie that night when he got to Stone Harbor and kind of admitted to her the affair yeah. with Anne-Marie and told her about the other affair with Susie. And, of course, she was upset. But he was like, I'm giving you justifications. This is why. This is how. Yada, yada, yada. Whatever. And yeah, told yeah. her that she was the one true love. Of course. Yeah. She's yeah. the one that's still here. Of course. Yeah. The paper came out with another update the day after, basically saying Anne-Marie and Tom Capano had dinner that night together, but police did not name his him as a suspect and stated he had been cooperative, which we know is not the case because no. he literally fled. Right. So, literally fled. <laughs> he literally left. He was gone. He was a jet setter. Good. That bad. same day, Bud Friel, the brother of Ed <laughs> from... Sorry, Friel! Oh my lord, have mercy. Is it F-R-E-E-L? F-R-I-E-L. I love it. Either way. Okay. Sorry. Well, he was the brother of Ed who got Anne-Marie the job with Tom Carper. Yes. Ed. He was Kathleen's ex. But he went to go visit Kathleen that day. And she was telling Bud that she was mad because Tom completely shut down and was not talking to anyone anymore. She's the lawyer. His attorney. Kathleen is the sister. God bless America. I'm so sorry. The lawyer's Kathy. Sorry. Yeah, they are kind of sorry. I'm sorry. For, you see, I mean, you have nothing to apologize for. Thanks, guys. Now, he offered to go talk to Tom for Kathleen because they were really good friends and he thought that he would be able to get through to him. Yes. But went to the beach house to find Tom holed up inside, talking on the phone, and chain-smoking. Tom was startled when he first saw Bud and Bud asked if he knew where Anne-Marie was just 
up front. He said, right. absolutely not. You know, he came up with a hundred different places that she might be, but he just could not. He could not tell them. He did not know. Mm-hmm. Bud begged Tom to go back to Wilmington and talk to police, but Tom refused. He said that he didn't trust the police, and he felt like all they were wanting was the dirty details of the affair he had with Anne-Marie. Don't flatter yourself. You I'm so... He wondered out loud if he should hold a press conference to try and clear his name. But Bud was like, that's literally the dumbest thing ever. And about two hours trying to convince Tom to go back to police, Bud realized he was getting nowhere. So he left and told all the siblings they had that he talked to Tom and Tom had no idea where Anne-Marie was. Right. Now on July 4th, there were search parties established to help look for Anne-Marie. They searched the entire park across the apartment and found absolutely nothing. During the searches, though, Tom called Bud and asked, Hey, man, how's the search going? And if they had found anything quite yet. He also told told Bud his lawyer advised him not to talk to him and that he should probably not talk to him the day before. Mm. And said, you know, my lawyer wanted me to ask you if you were secretly recording our conversation yesterday. Oh. And Bud was, like, immediately pissed off. He was like, what? He was like, hold your horses, man. I'm sitting here defending you. And you're about this to look at me sideways. Horrible. Yeah, like, Boo. no, thank you. We've been friends for years. And Bud told him he better get his ass back to Delaware to talk to police. Or <clears throat> and that shut Tom up for just a minute. Tom said he was going to think about it, and he wanted Bud to give Amory's older brother a message saying, quote, tell him I would like to meet him and that I was very good to Anne-Marie, that I bought her gifts and clothes and other things. I gave her money when she was broke, bought her groceries the other night because I was concerned about her not eating, end quote. The next day, Bud told Tom he told Robert. What? Tom, he told Robert. Yeah. The next day, Bud told Tom that he told Robert. Yes. What he said, and Robert was like, well, tell Tom that if he wants to come talk, come on. Bring it. Bring it on, Buttercup. <clears throat> Waiting. And Tom was like, well, change of plans. I've decided to come back to Wilmington and talk to the police. So, July 8th, Bud received another call from Tom saying he was upset with the police because all they were trying to do was pin Anne-Marie's disappearance on him. And he kept bringing up how disgusted he was in the officers being interested in his sex life. Stop it. What? This guy, his ego is too much. He said again that the police knew she was fine, but wanted some interesting scandal to throw out there. Unbeknownst to Tom, though, the FBI was arriving into Wilmington after being asked by local authorities to help. And after looking at the case, the FBI... I think you might be having a stroke. You said case. <laughs> case. I've been looking at Alyssa this. has developed a slight lisp over the past couple of minutes. I was looking at the case. The FBI. <laughs> That's I love it. The FBI. They'll be known from. They'll be known as from the this FBI. Day the end of my days. The FBI. <laughs> okay, so they came to the conclusion. That Tom murdered Anne-Marie Fahey. What are you laughing about? You just reminded me of my high school biology teacher. She had a list. She was so pleasant. I mean, she was. I can't remember her name. 
I would blast her on the pod. Moss phone just started playing music. It's nice. <laughs> Who is this? What? You don't know this song? Hell no, I don't know this song. <laughs> you do? No. This is weird. Did I say, did we say compromised? I don't like, I don't like the phone. Listening. I don't like this situation. I, it's just, I'm home. really uncomfortable with it. You know, like, don't listen to me. And listen then do what I'm agent. thinking. I know. The FBI, they're doing this. <laughs> compromised is the name of the song. Oh, Stop it. Who's been compromised? <laughs> you? <laughs> is it me? <laughs> is it um, you? Listen, FBI, I'm going to go ahead and add it to my library. <laughs> I did. Yeah, right. Quit. I love you, FBI. Whatever. So, anyways, they, um, <laughs> that was wild. Are these shenanigans, man? These are so They true. put that nan in shenanigans. <laughs> you heard what I said? No. She said no. no. Okay. I blocked that. <laughs> We're going to cut it out because I couldn't follow that. What just the, took place? The FBI just got me. <laughs> I, I could see Miss Miss whatever her name was face and her. I used to sit for the class and she would spritz me with her spittle. She couldn't <laughs> help spittle? it. She couldn't help it. She was a sweet lady. After looking at the case, the FBI <laughs> yes. Came to the conclusion that they thought Tom had murdered Anne-Marie Fahey. Uh, okay. Their they idea know. was to go undercover and kind of try and use the Capano brothers against Tom somehow. But we'll tie the brothers back into it a little okay. bit later on. Now, during this time, papers were released that Bill Clinton made federal assistance available in the case. But actually, he said he was going to look into it. Uh-uh. He did offer his assistance and help to Tom Carper and the Fahey family. And something else happened that Tom wasn't really in on was Cole McConnelly, the prosecutor. Uh-huh. He had been going through Tom's credit card records and found a purchase of $300 to Wallpaper Warehouse two days after Emory vanished. Now, that purchase kind of puzzled him because he lived in a rental house and couldn't just be adding wallpaper up. Right. So, McConnelly called the store and found out that Tom had actually bought a rug, which led him to think that Tom possibly lured or kidnapped Anne-Marie back to his house and killed her there. He said lured. (laughs) I was going to breeze past and I was like, no. Lured? Lured. You're so country, y'all. <laughs> Sorry. A little sickly, but, um, yeah. Learn. I mean, look, if you want to roll with it, sister, let's do it. Because I'm here for it. Oh, boy. This is going to be a long one. It feels like it's like 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> it's a nighttime episode. If y'all can't it always is. We are the goofiest in the night hours. Now... <clears throat> this is where he believed that she was wrapped up in a rug and disposed of. Yes. Police talked to Tom's cleaning lady to ask about this, and she said not only was there a new rug that had been purchased, but there was also some new furniture, too. And they had found that he made a purchase at a drugstore, and the clerk said that Tom was coming in looking for something that could remove blood stains. No way. He did not murder this girl and then go to the pharmacy and ask for something that could remove blood stains. He's an idiot. This guy. No, it's his ego. Oh, it's disgusting. 
Now, July 31st, they were able to get a warrant and search Tom's house. So, agents sat outside of Tom's house waiting for Debbie to leave before they went to confront Tom. Um, In that moment, you could see, like, when she leaves and the police walk up to his door, Uh you could see the blood drain from his face. He was not expecting a federal search of his home at all. And thankfully, the FBI turned his house upside down looking for any clues, evidence, just anything that could help point to Tom being the one who made her vanish. Now, Agent Eric Albert went into the bedroom with Tom to watch him get ready for the day and, of course, make sure he wasn't getting rid of any evidence. Blushing. But Tom was so shaken and frazzled, he couldn't even pick out a suit for himself to wear. Like, Mm. he was that stressed out about the agents being in his house. Eric had to help him pick out a suit, and he remembered taking a wool suit and exchanging it for a lighter one because it was hot outside. Tom had picked a wool suit to wear. In the summer, in July. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Tom went into the bathroom, and when um, Albert heard the toilet flush, she busted in there, and Tom was like, hey, man, I'm just flushing a cigarette. And he was like, yeah, you ain't getting one past me. So he had the entire pipes, like, flushed. The toilet was taken apart, and everything was checked out. Nice. Yeah, like they were on F- his F- house. That's what I'm F- talking F- about. was on his house. So they did several, several searches of his house, um, you know, all over the place that yeah. day, and did find several spots of blood where furniture was, and the you know the rug was replaced. Yep. During the search, Charlie Overly stood outside the house and talked to media, saying his client would have allowed a search. If he had just been asked. But that's besides the point. Because luckily Sorry. they were able to find a sample of Anne Marie's blood. And test it against the spots found in Tom's house. And they were a match. Yes they were people. Now with Tom yes, Capano being a huge name. Like I've already mentioned a million and one times. The news and media were like on him like white on rice. And that led to tipsters all over that had encountered either of them. Calling in with information that they thought might be helpful. One of them was a guy from the General Motor plant and said that a co-worker of his had bought a boat from Jerry Capano. Mm -hmm. But the boat had been missing an anchor. Now, the tipster kind of suggested the police that his theory was she was at the bottom of the ocean with that missing anchor. The FBI found out about the boat. (laughs) You know, he... You know, he went to Tom, and Tom was like, we got to get you a lawyer. So, they got Dan Lyons to represent him. So, Jerry and Tom talked so they could come up with a story together, which Jerry happened to write down on a yellow sticky note. Like, come on, if you're going to come up with an alibi or, you know whatever. I mean, let's not have it on a sticky note where the cops can find what it at any given second. It's just so cocky. So, on August 5th, Tom was informed there would be a grand jury looking into the evidence of the kidnapping of Anne-Marie Fahey. He immediately went into panic thinking about all of the people that could be called to testify against him. Mm. Now, the first grand jury session was on August 29th, and that morning he told Lewis that he was going to need an alibi and asked if he could tell the authorities that Tom had been at his house early on June 28th discussing Capano investments. 
But even with that lie, McConnelly knew Lewis couldn't be trusted. So in November, while the grand jury was still meeting, they were able to get a break in the case. Eric Albert got a warrant for the office of, um, there, so in Tom Capano's law office, one of his partners, they were able to get a, a search warrant for the partner's office. And they kind of don't tell you exactly where they get this idea from or this tip, but there had to have been something that made them get this warrant because they busted in this man's office, went straight to his bookshelf and removed a like 10 ish pieces of paper that were wedged in between books and were supposed to be hidden. Like they would have never been seen unless they like someone knew they were there. Now, specific. Yeah. Yeah. And they never, like I said, they never revealed where they got their tip from. But on one of the pages, they found a timeline that was written in Tom's handwriting. Now, there was no date on this, but the events on the timeline matched up with what Tom was saying he had done on the 28th, the day after Anne Marie had disappeared. So they were assuming that this timeline was one for June 28th. Mm -hmm. Now, there was, you know, tons of different people's names on there, like Lewis, Jerry, Mom, you know, with times. Yep. And the only thing that I found that was a little sus, just by looking at it, would be he wrote on this sticky note, Dump Love Seat. Uh-uh. Now... The other pieces of paper they found were lists Tom had made about Anne-Marie and everything that he thought, I guess, was wrong with her. What? Yeah. Now, I didn't really get any clarification on this, any details about what these said, but the last piece of paper they found was written in Tom's handwriting. And it basically said that Anne-Marie had left work on this date. I can't remember the date. Maybe June 18th. Um, but she had left work because she was having a very, very heavy period that day that apparently had bled through her clothes. Uh, he now, wrote that down? Wait a minute. Well, this will come back later because he, this is, and this is another part of his alibi, uh, basically. Yep, yep. So, coincidentally, Anne-Marie happened to be at his house that night eating supper. Uh. So this is where he says, you know, all of her blood in his house came from. You know, the ones on the, the baseboards, you know, the floor. They come from her period. Whoa, stop. You know, because, well, you know, of course all of us women, you know, we walk around without clothes on and just mark our territory with period everywhere, blood. right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's normal. So. Everywhere. Everywhere. Oh. <laughs> you don't know I've been here. So. <laughs> After they found the list, the agents went to Stone Harbor because on the timeline it had SH for Stone Harbor. So that led them to the beach and they did a land and sea search. They were asking neighbors if they had seen anything super large being put on or taken off a boat. No one said they had, but they did end up talking to Jeffrey 
Stape, who lived beside Jerry. Now, he said that he saw Tom at Jerry's house on June 28th, a, a little before 6 a.m., so really early in the morning. And Stape said when he looked over their way, Tom was, like, trying to hide his face. Guy, yeah. I can just go ahead and say it. Guilty. Guilty. Guilty as charged. He's about to get real more guilty, yeah. okay? Like, way more guilty. Just wait until... Uh, it's disturbing. So, while the feds were collecting more information on Tom, Tom was working on the only lady he really had left, Debbie McIntyre. Wow. He started spending almost all of his time with her and her kids. And Debbie believed... Oh, uh, yeah, right. And Debbie believed Tom when he said that he had nothing to do with Anne-Marie's disappearance. And she wasn't really wanting to pry because, I mean, this was the first time in, what, over a decade that she finally had him to herself. And I just don't think she was really looking at it like that, you know? She's like, oh, you said you didn't do it? I believe you. They spent Christmas that year together, you know, and they were just having a great time. But all of this bliss that she had been living in, I guess you could say, was about to come to a very, very abrupt stop. In January of 1997, the affidavit of probable cause that was filed to get the warrant for Tom's house was released to the media. Now, when this was released, Debbie's name was released as well. Yeah. And so, Tom was like, hey, he went over to Debbie and he was like, listen, now that all of this is kind of out, let's just kind of keep it to ourselves that we've been having an affair for over a decade. Uh, you know, it would look bad on you. I don't want don't tell you. How did she, how is she the one that would, like, what? you're doing it for you. You were doing it so you don't look bad. Exactly. That sucks, man. This guy's horrible. He's so just, what? oh, he, he's the worst. Y'all remember he, from uh, Parks and Rec? The brother. I don't. I just. I just don't watch that, man. Oh, uh, excuse me. You need to. She's the worst. It's so funny. <laughs> you gotta watch. It. So sorry. Continue. Tom's legal team decided they wanted to release information of their own uh. since the affidavit had been released, and they put private letters written by Anne Marie to Tom in the papers for everyone to read. Uh. All of these letters were, of course, nice letters and, you know, doting on him and all their relationship. But just because she's writing love letters and thank you letters to him doesn't mean he isn't a psychotic murderer. Because, I just want to ask a question, I mean, how, how many domestic violence survivors or, you know, people that are dealing with domestic violence, how many of those do you know that would stand up to ignore or scream at their abuser? Because I'm going to guess probably none, due to them all being scared. I mean, she, she, she couldn't even completely cut it off from him. Now, the feds learned that in the house Tom was living in, after, because he had moved out of his rental house... After they found the blood spots. And he moved into... I don't know. I guess he was living with his brother, Lewis, possibly. Or maybe in one of his brother's houses. Right. 
but they had gotten some information that said there was recording devices in the home because Laurie, Lewis's wife, was speculating that her husband, Lewis, had been cheating on her while she was away. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Now, when they asked Laurie for the tape, she was like, no, marital privilege, and she was held in contempt of court. On April 24th, the Court of Appeals ruled that she did not have to turn in the tapes, but she would still be held in contempt until she testified. Which, like, I mean, why the f*** would you not hand over the tapes? Like, Lewis was definitely cheating on her. <laughs> like, why Why would you not be like, yes, here. Yeah, Here's it all. Well, I said, I wondered if it was, I mean, like, there's so many women that are in her position that are married to very wealthy, um, protected. Yeah, you're right. Men, you know, and I feel like they stand by them through anything, even if they do know bad things they're doing. Yep. So many times, well, in money, I mean, you know, you think about it, if don't want right. the baby train cut off. I hate to say that. I'm not saying women are like that. All women, but I mean, money's a pretty powerful thing in a cap capitalist country, you know? Like, Well, in most people, I'm not going to say her, because she was not in this position. Because um, Lori herself was actually a, a very good golfer and had went to, like, the U.S. Women's Open or something like that. I don't know anything about golf, right. but... She was allegedly, like, really freaking good. So, to me, it wasn't about the money, but I do see where a lot of women in these situations stay for money because they're completely cut off. Like, their husband provides everything for them. So, But I, I for me, from my understanding, she wasn't in that position, so I just don't really know what that's all about. But in September of 1997, another name was included. In an affidavit filed by the FBI. The FBI. And yes, the FBI. It was Linda Marindola. Now, if you don't remember Linda, she was the woman that Tom was obsessed with back in the 1980s. And when she tried to cut it off and was like, no, no, I'm still getting married, he tried to get her killed. Uh, he tried. Do you remember that? Yeah, he was going to like, he wanted her to like, I can't even remember now, but. That's a lot, Elizabeth. Yeah, he was, like, going to get her taken out for not wanting to be with him. Now, this was a big deal because when Linda's name came out and her relationship with Tom, it helped build a case of a pattern of abusing and controlling women that Tom seemed to have. Now, I know. Now, the next thing that the prosecution was going to do was try to go after the other brother, Jerry. Cole McConnelly made... Cole... I keep forgetting this dude's name. It's Cole Connolly. So, I've been saying Cole McConnelly, but I think it's Cole... Connolly? Cole, C-O-L-M, Connolly. So, let me correct myself in the middle of this yeah. episode. Um, so, Connolly made a call to ATF, which is the Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives yes. Department, um, 
And he was going to key them in on Jerry having a pretty lengthy criminal record along with abusing drugs and alcohol and owning several guns. So, in October of 97, the feds showed up to Jerry's mansion and served him with a search warrant. In the house, they found an unlocked gun safe in one of his children's bedrooms. They confiscated several guns along with tons of cocaine. Yeah, but supposedly this wasn't enough and the feds were going to try and find something that was worse that Jerry would actually be scared of. So, he would be more likely to take a deal and you know, exchange that for less, you know, less time if he gave him some information. Yeah. The week after they got the search warrant for, oh, the week after that, they got a search warrant for Jerry's best friend's home, who was a felon. And when they searched his home, they found a gun that was registered to Jerry. So that was another big no-no. Um, not only was buying a gun for somebody else illegal, but buying a gun for a felon is, like, super double crime. So, it wasn't looking good for Jerry. But that's good that it wasn't looking good for him. Because on November 8th of 1997, Jerry and his lawyer, Dan Lyons, met with the team of investigators, you know, the agents and the prosecution, all of them, on Anne Marie's case. Jerry agreed to work with the feds to save his own ass, which is exactly where they wanted him at. Now, this is when Jerry gives a lot of information. The first thing he tells them is, hey, back in about February of 96, so the February before Anne-Marie went missing, Tom borrowed $8,000 from me. He said it was to pay off some extortionist. And then he came and borrowed a 10 millimeter gun from me, saying it was for the same extortionist. And he just kind of thought Tom was being a little dramatic, and he didn't report it because he just didn't think anything was going to happen. Then, on the 28th of June, he says he gets up and he walks outside right before 6 a.m. and finds Tom sitting in his driveway, just casually reading the morning paper. Jerry approached Tom, and, and Tom was like, hey man, can I use your boat? And Jerry said he knew immediately that Tom had killed someone. And he was like, um, Tom, did you kill someone? And Tom was like, yes. And then he asked for Jerry's help in disposing of the body. Yes. This is all according to Jerry. Now. Okay. Who is trying to get out of something else, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Right. Jerry, <laughs> well, that's the problem. Oh, oh, and we'll get into that in a little bit later. Now, I'm not saying that I don't believe Jerry. Right. We believe Jerry, right? We, I just don't know. We're here. We're here. Okay. This is, I'm giving you the information. So, he was like, Absolutely not. I'm not helping you dispose of a body. I mean, I have a wife. I have children. I have a good life. I'm not messing it up and ruining it for you huh? and your mistake. But Tom was like, dude, please help me. I mean, even if you don't, you know, help me dispose of the body, I need you to help at least drive the boat. I mean, do you want me to go out in the ocean and just wreck it? Because he, he was like, I don't know how to drive a boat. I and Jerry was like, 
we're fine. I'll drive the boat. And Tom was like, meet up at my rental. So, I, they they got to Tom's rental house about 8, 8 a.m. that morning. Right. And upon arriving, Jerry said he saw a huge cooler with a chain wrapped around it and a lock. And there was a rolled up rug in his garage. They proceed to load the cooler into Jerry's vehicle. They drove back to Stone Harbor where they got the cooler on the boat and drove about 70 miles offshore where it was almost 200 feet deep. The pair then tipped the cooler off board and watched it float. <laughs> Sorry. I it's a cooler. I mean, it's a cooler, guys. It's not going to sink. So, and this is like one of those igloo coolers. I think, like. It was probably a fancy cooler. These boats. I'm thinking, I'm thinking it's not a fancy cooler. I'm thinking it might be a little upgrade from, like, a foam cooler. Oh. I mean, I'll show you pictures of it. I got it. But either way, it wasn't going to sink. So, the next thing was... Gotta find it. Okay. Jerry then decided he was going to take his 12-gauge shotgun and shoot the cooler. Oh, oh, oh to poke a hole in it. Okay. Mm -hmm. But that didn't matter because it still didn't sink. Now, I want to preface this really fast or just remind everyone listening that at this time, Jerry doesn't realize who's in the cooler. He's... Uh, supposedly, yeah, supposedly, right. This is under, Jerry telling us this, right? So he's under the impression that it was one of these extortionists. And oh yeah, and Jerry said as soon as he you know shot, he he told the feds that he remembered seeing blood dribbling out of the gun hole, and he remembered it, and he kind of like got wheezy when he was telling it. I mean, I can only imagine. Right. Jerry then decided to give two of the boat's anchors to Tom and said, take these anchors, do what you will with them, but I'm done helping. Mm. Like, we can't leave this cooler floating, but I'm also not helping anymore. So, he gives him the two anchors and then just says he, he says he turns his back to Tom. He takes himself out of the situation. Now, allegedly, instead of wrapping the anchor and the anchor chains around the cooler itself, Tom takes Anne Marie's body and wraps the anchors around her body. Ugh. Now, while he was doing this, he was like throwing up and gagging over the side of the boat. Damn. So, oh my gosh. So this guy, like, this is probably what happened? Yeah. Like, I'm, like, I, I, be I believe so far that Jerry, well, I don't know, he probably helped push her body over, too. Like, I'm sure he did a little bit more than what he's exactly. saying. Exactly, yep. Absolutely. But I'm wondering if the, the events are the same. Yep. And just different, you know, like, him helping out more than he said he was. Well... After Tom got her body wrapped in the anchors, he then tips her body 
outside of the cooler for it to sink down into the ocean. Now, coincidentally, Jerry just turned around at this moment and said he saw a foot and a calf disappearing under the waves. So he knew in that moment for 100% sure, it, I mean, he knew already it was a human, but he then says, yes, I saw a foot and a calf. This whole entire outing, if you will, took about five hours in total, and it wasn't until mid-afternoon before they got back. Tom wasn't done with Jerry yet. He said he still needed his help getting rid of a couch that had a ton of blood on it. Jerry said, well, first of all, I mean, they can't walk out with a blood-stained couch in the middle of the day. No. So, his plan was to cut the blood stain out of the sofa. Mm-hmm. And they removed all the foam inside of the sofa that had blood on it as well. And Jerry kind of beat the couch up a little bit to make it look broken so nobody took it out of the dumpster. And yep. then dumped it into Capano construction dumpster. Yep, which he called and asked for it to be dumped. Exactly. Now we're going to get into something else that kind of ties in why he was calling the Holiday Inn. Mm-hmm. So after this, Tom goes back, or during this, after this, whatever, he goes, cuts up the foam that was inside the couch, he cuts up the bloodstained rug, puts them in garbage bags, and then dumps them behind the Holiday Inn that his family owned. And, of course, we know that he does call both of those places and asks for the dumpster to be dumped. So, yes, we do. for him to give these kind of details, specific details, it makes me believe it, right? Like, Right, absolutely. He not only said they went out 70 miles offshore and it was 200 feet deep, so that's very specific. Yeah. He then literally gives, like, he's like, this is where her body is. This is what happened. Yep. This is where the sofa was. This is where all the rest of it was. You can go back and look at all his phone records to see that he called the Holiday Inn and called and made sure that Capana Construction's dumpsters was emptied, so it was all leading back to him. Yep. Now, Conley said the entire interview, Jerry was a complete wreck. He was crying in random places. He was getting nauseous and sick during times. Uh-huh. And he just said he was completely just, he just felt horrible about what happened and what would happen to Tom. Now, both Lewis and Jerry would testify at the grand jury on November 12th of 1997. Now, while they were waiting for the grand jury to convene, Eric Albert got some kind of not-so-good news. He heard that Tom Capano might be getting ready to run, and that wasn't good. Not only because, I mean, he doesn't need to run, obviously, but they didn't want to bring him in quite yet until both of the brothers had testified. One, to make sure they had a solid case and could hold him. But two, they didn't want Tom to know that his brothers had testified him, had testified against him yet. But him thinking that he's about to run, you know, he had no other option than to bring Tom Capano in. So he, I think he was at, I can't remember exactly where he's at, but... He literally, like, runs five miles from, like, the 
I can't remember where wherever they were having the grand jury at to where Tom Capano was being held at. He like rushes there and sits down with him and says, you know, I want. Uh, he doesn't sit down with him first, but he knows that he wants to charge him with first degree murder. Right. But he knew that the case was resting on the testimonies of two not very A plus citizens. Okay. And they weren't super reliable, I guess you could say. And there wasn't really any damning evidence yet. You know, they hadn't found her body. They hadn't found the cooler yet. They hadn't found the rug, the, you know, none of the blood spots on the couch. They couldn't find anything that was like, Tom Capano killed her this night. This is what happened, you know? Yeah, for sure. Tom, not Tom. So instead of just kind of rushing in there and, you know, interrogating him without much information, he decided to take a different approach and lay out the entire case for Tom, hoping he would see what they had against him and plead guilty to kidnapping of Anne-Marie Fahey that would eventually lead in her death, or lead to her death. Mm. He would get life in prison, but there was no death penalty now, that was what his plan was. Right. They also ended up getting an exact replica of the cooler that they had heard about and put it on a table in a conference room wrapped in, like, chains, hoping Tom would think it was, you know, the cooler he used. Yeah. Um, but there was no bullet hole in the, co- the cooler, so he wasn't fooled. He was like, I know that's not the cooler I used. You guys still haven't found it. You still have no evidence. Uh-huh. When Tom's lawyer got there, he informed him that Jerry and Lewis did testify against him during the grand jury. And Tom was, he was not faced. I mean, he was like, do you people not know who you're talking to? Like, these are unreliable witnesses. They've been in legal trouble themselves. I mean, who is to believe them? I mean, I'm Tom Capano. I've never been in any legal trouble in my life. I'm great. I'm a great lawyer. People think highly of me. I mean, it's me against them, basically. But, when he was played their interviews, he was immediately put in a foul mood. McConnelly knew that the deal would not be accepted, unfortunately. And, one of these attorneys on Tom's legal team during this time, Joseph Hurley went straight to the media to badmouth the two brothers and cast them in a bad light. Yeah, so of course, when it all came out in the media, it was, I mean, who's going to believe these two felons over Tom Capone? I mean, you know, like, right. He said, this is what his literal lawyer said in this press conference or whatever. Ugh. Quote, you can bet. Every dollar in your pocket and every hair on your head that Tom Capano is going to plead not guilty. End quote. Oh my God. Besides the mounds of evidence backed up against it. Right? right? I mean, we still have the papers they found. This is not just his two brothers' testimony. Well, and of course, it's the problem is it's all circumstantial and it all looks really damn good together. But... But they... But you know it. They are. They are so, like, 
picky about no body murder convictions. Like, they're, the, lawyers are kind of scared of going there. Right, not yet. So, in that very moment, though, you know, as soon as he was saying, you know, you can bet he's not going to plead guilty to that. He's, he would never do that. In that same moment, after an entire year right. of grand jury hearing evidence and the feds working their asses off to get all of these details, Tom Capano was finally, finally, finally being charged with murder and being held without bail. Oh, that was it. Huh? So, we're going to have a part three. Oh, goodness sakes alive. You crazy I, girl. We got to go. We got to finish up. I literally... Y'all, I apologize. I did not want to do this a part three. But we haven't even gotten to the trial yet. Yeah, and if there's that much info, then... Well, and I was about to say, like, we're already pushing probably like an hour and a half on this episode. What? We have not been talking for that long. No, we haven't. Oh, but we already talked some. We already recorded yesterday. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. So, we are going to have to do a part three. That's all right. We're all here for well, I hope you guys are enjoying the Anne-Marie Fahey case, and I hope I'm, I hope you want the details. Like, y'all don't give me enough feedback on, like, what y'all like, so I'm going to assume y'all are, like, kicking it with us and yeah. here for all these parts, Better. because, just like me. I mean, I can't stop. It's like I keep finding out things, and I'm like, why? Everybody needs to know this. Like, and I have to give you all the details. And, now, this isn't, like, this is, I haven't heard this case covered a lot, but I feel like it's probably halfway well-known just because of the characters involved in the case. Yeah. And so, when I have a case that's deals with, you know, very well-known people, or you know, just a very well-known case in general... I want to give y'all details that you haven't heard, not just the basic same old, same old. You know, I got to give it a little spice. You know, you just don't want to hear the same. Absolutely not. Yeah, six, you know, uh, seconds of a whatever. But anyway, so that is all for part two, guys. Come back. Oh, let's do this. So next week, guys, we will have a special episode like we've already mentioned briefly. Um, it's actually, we're going to still plan on it coming out on Sunday, right? Yes, as far as I know, and it's the case of, I'm covering it, um, of a missing man named Riles Chapman from Dothan. Um, I hope maybe you've all seen it, we've shared it on the page, but hopefully I'll be able to get in touch with his parents or his dad and get the last pieces of info for it. If something were to fall through, we're doing it on Sunday because he disappeared December 18th of 2013. So this, so this will be, yes, I'll be, this will be his, then our episode, so that week, guys, what we're probably going to do is we're just going to move our schedule, so we'll only have one episode come out next week. It won't be the part three. We're going to, this is going to be the first time we kind of do a break in that, but it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Um, Alyssa, we can't talk about things, okay? Do what? We can't, our listeners are here for it all. 
they'll be we'll be fine. Oh well, I just I just kind of let just update the listeners. So if y'all are expecting part three next week, it'll probably come out the week of Christmas. Uh, that's so week. crazy. We're already almost at Christmas. Stop, dude. It. I know. I know. I'm talking about the week of Christmas, like it's next <laughs> week. That's crazy. Oh, gosh. No. But yeah, so our our Tuesday episode will actually come out on Sunday, and it's going to be a special episode. It is going to be the ninth anniversary of a Dothan man who has been missing, and we are excited to talk about it. We're excited to cover it. Yep. And so that will put Anne Marie Fahey part three, final part. I promise. Yep. Um, that'll be coming at you guys actually the week after christmas okay so it'll be coming out on the 27th nice and i'm excited to hear the end like you're gonna have to tell me after this sorry (laughs) but you're gonna have to tell me after what happened like i I just need you i gotta know well that i just wanted to update the guy uh you know our listeners on our schedule cuz it's going to be kind of wacky the next few weeks so we'll have a sunday episode we'll do Anne Marie Fahey part 3 after christmas and then i think we're planning on taking a week off so there will not be a new episode the first week of january but we will kind of hit you back after the holidays with a brand new year of Ill Natured. So exciting. We have so excited and overwhelmed that our listeners keep improving. I mean, our listenership keeps improving. That means you have a ton of people and share us. And we appreciate it. Um, next year at Christmas, I personally am going to be a little more organized with my thing because me and Alyssa tend to, we've been just in it because of the busyness of the holidays. We're waiting until the very last minute to record. And there's just so much going on this time of year. You all know the mothers, yeah. the mothers you know. And so anyway, we'll, um, next year, we're going to have it together so there are no breaks in, in content. That's what we're hoping, and we're hoping we can get a good schedule going. And if we have ourselves caught up, if we're doing well, maybe next year is a good year to go to two episodes a week. But it all will depend on our listeners, and if you guys are listening, if you guys are recommending us and spreading the word like wildflower, you know, we want to give you all the good content. Um, It's just hard with full-time busy schedules, so... Y'all bear with us as we still kind of navigate but, the pod world. Alyssa, we're killing it. We have not had a week where we didn't get an episode out, have we? No, uh-uh, we haven't. I didn't think so. That's pretty sick, you know, for our for yep. almost whole year. So I think we should just take a moment to pat ourselves on the back. I think so, too. Yes. And really quick before we go... um. As you guys know, in 2023, March 1st will be Ill Nature's one-year anniversary. Um, send us in ideas. Could y'all think of a nice one-year anniversary special episode we could do? Um, y'all let us know if there's a specific case you want us to cover or specific topics or just, you know, anything. Um, shoot them in because we want to make that um, one-year anniversary episode special for all of you guys who have been supporting us for almost a whole year. And we just love you guys so much. We do love you guys so very much. And, love and feedback. I know Alyssa already said feedback, but 
it keeps us going. Like, yes, it just, it gives, it's like fuel every time somebody writes on our Facebook or sends us a message. So keep it up. That's right. And with all of that being said, you guys need to be following us on the Instagram. At Donated Pod. Go hit up our Facebook group. Donated Podcast. We got a TikTok, y'all know. At Donated Pod. Shoot us those emails. Yeah, Pod at yahoo.com. And make sure you are spreading the word like wildflower, baby. Please and thank you. Got we will carry this. Tell your mama, your grandma. Lots of people like true crime. Okay. All right. But listen, but, but for cereal, everybody have a great week. And hopefully we'll have this story Sunday. If anything changes, we will keep you all posted there. I hope that's all right. So we will catch you guys on the flip side. Peace.